0: Isaiah chapter 65 this morning. Isaiah 65. Most Americans live for the weekend. And we thank God when it's Friday because, at long last, the w- work week is over and we get some time off. We can sleep in and we can go to the cabin or out on the lake. We can enjoy the good life. We can do whatever we want to do. We live for the weekend. But this morning I'd like to push back on that idea that we live for the weekend and I propose that we look beyond the weekend and that we live for the, the end. The Old Testament patriarchs lived and died in faith looking forward to the promises of God yet future. New Testament believers live and die in faith looking forward to the promises yet in the future. The Apostle James put it this way, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We look forward not to the weekend, we look forward to the end when Jesus will come again and make all things new. We live for the end because our best life is not now. Isaiah 65 tells us of that glorious end. And from Isaiah 65 this morning I prepared a message simply titled Live for the End. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? God in heaven above, we sing Alleluia, for our hope in life and death is Jesus Christ alone. And God, as we come to these final chapters of the book of Isaiah, I pray that you would encourage us and assure us with these truths. Lord, may we not live for the weekend, but for the end, as you return as you set up your kingdom, as you create a new heaven and a new earth, and as you reward us with all that you've promised us. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm so grateful for the scripture that we read earlier in our service and for the songs that we've sung in the service. Colossians 3, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Please help us to set our minds on things above, not on the things of the earth, for we've died and our life is hidden with Christ and God. Help us to look to the end. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will appear with him in glory. For Christ is our hope in life and death, and we sing Alleluia. I hope that the theme of this service will remain in your mind and your heart through the end of this message. We've come to Isaiah 65. And Isaiah 65 really begins as a response to the prayer of Isaiah 64. Isaiah 65 will conclude with the theme that I've just laid out. But you remember how that in Isaiah 64, Isaiah prayed for God to rend the heavens, to come down to demonstrate his mercy towards sinful man, but while Israel was desperate for God's presence to come among them, God is saying this in chapter 65, here I am, here I am. Look at Isaiah 65, verse number one. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I would title verse number one in this way, The Open Invitation of God. The Open Invitation of God. Now we know that God chose Israel set his love upon Israel to be a special treasure above all the people, groups of the earth, Deuteronomy 7. We know that God entered into covenant with Israel and worked his plan of redemption through Israel. However, at the same time, God was extending an open invitation to those who were not called by his name, verse number one. That is none other than the Gentiles. How do we know that it's the Gentiles? Because the Apostle Paul applied Isaiah 65, verse number one, To the Gentiles in Romans chapter 10. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10 for a moment this morning. Keep your finger in Isaiah 65, but turn to Romans chapter 10. In Romans 10, Paul explains how that God offered righteousness by faith to the Jews and Gentiles. Ultimately, not all the Jews accepted the invitation, but many Gentiles did. Romans chapter 10, look at verse number 14. It's a familiar passage But allow me to connect the dots between Isaiah 65 verse 1 and Romans chapter 10 verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace who bring glad tidings of good things. That's Isaiah 52 verse number 7. For they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, Lord... Who has believed our report? That's Isaiah 53, verse number one. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, of course, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the earth, Psalm 19, verse four. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Deuteronomy 32 verse 21. But Isaiah is very bold and says, here it is. This is where we're going. Verse number 20 is Isaiah 65, verse number one. I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. That is our text this morning. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's Isaiah 65, verse number two. You see, God's invitation to Israel for relationship and redemption was an open invitation that also included the Gentiles who did not know God, Galatians 4, verse 8, and were not initially called by his name. Isaiah 65, verse number 1. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes... For the Jew first, but also for the Greek or for the Gentile. Turn back to Isaiah 65. Back in Isaiah 65. Now Isaiah 64, Isaiah's prayer was for God to, to, to rend the heavens. To come down to man. But now in Isaiah 65, God's answer was that he's always been extending himself to man. Look at Isaiah 65 verse number 2. As we just read in Romans 10. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. And so using an anthropomorphism that is God with with hands, God is saying that he's offering himself, he's extending his hand to his people. But they walked away after their own way because they were rebellious. So there's an open invitation of God, but there's a closed rebellion against God. There's a closed rebellion against God, number two. It's as if Israel put their heads down, their blinders on, their, their fingers in their ears, and marched off in the wrong direction, away from God, deliberately closing their, themselves off to his outstretched hand. And more, Moses warned them, back in Deuteronomy 9, Moses said, do not forget how you provoke the Lord to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Also the psalmist Asaph in Psalm 78, do not be like your fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Verse eight, verse 40, how often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They were rebellious. They were closed in their rebellion to God and it's not so unlike us as a stubborn and re- stiff-necked and rebellious people. We are prone to wander as is right in our own eyes. We, are, we, we cut off the memories of all that God has done for us and we shut down the voices that speak the truth of God to us and we close off our hearts to his prompting and his calling and ironically, we cry for God to rend the heavens and come down to us. But yet we close ourselves off to his offer, his hand extended to us. Look at Israel's rebellion in verses 3 and 4. A people who provoked me to anger continually to my, to my face. Who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick. That is describing idolatry in pagan places. Verse 4. Who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs. What is that? That is describing necromancy. Necromancy is the demonic effort to communicate and consult with the dead. Who eat swine's flesh. And the broth of abominable things is in their vessels. They're disregarding the dietary laws of God for Israel. And Israel's rebellion against God was beyond indifference. It became idolatry. They turned from not worshiping the true God all the way to worshiping the false gods. It's it's not like they simply dropped out of church. It's they went and joined a cult, if you will, That was their rebellion. And and of course, we would never do that, right? We we might drop out of church, but we we would never join a false religion or a a cult or engage in idolatry and and idol worship. But we might rebel against God in, in this way. Look at verse five. Verse five, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. This is what Israel's, rebellion looked like. Bible commentator here Ray Ortlund has said every man made religion whether pagan or puritanical ends up not only dishonoring God but also mistreating people. I've copied this for you in the back of your notes. Its message to people is keep to yourself do not come near me for I am too holy for you. Folks, God hates this. He hates a proud look and he resists the proud and there's no room for spiritual arrogance toward others. Do you, you know how God feels about this? Look at verse five again. Verse five B, they are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. And the consequences will follow. Verse six, behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence but will repay, even repay into their bosom. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your father together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed blasphemed me on the hills, therefore I will measure their former works into their bosom. Okay. But not all of Israel was rebellious. There were some that were faithful to God, who feared God in the midst of a rebellious generation. What about the remnant of God's people? And that would be number three, the true authenticity toward God. True authenticity toward God, I would point you to verse number eight, thus says the Lord. Verse eight, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it. So I will do for my servant's sake that I may not destroy them all. The picture in verse eight is of a, of a harvest of grapes to make new wine. Many of the grapes were bad, but some of the grapes were good. So what do you do? You you don't throw away the whole cluster of grapes, the whole harvest, but rather you separate the good from the bad in in the very same way. God separates those who accept him and those who reject him. The authentic followers of the Lord will gain the inheritance in the end, will dwell in the land in the end. Look at verse 9. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it. My servant shall dwell there. Sharon will be a fold of flocks. And the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. On the one hand On the other hand, those who forsake the Lord, forget the Lord. The bad grapes will be marked for destruction, verse 11. But you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad. Gad is the name of a false god. It's often translated, perhaps rendered in your Bible, fortune. And who furnish a drink offering for Menei. That is a name of a false god. Other translations might render this destiny. If you see fortune and destiny there in your Bibles, perhaps in verse number 11. But Israel worshipped these false gods by setting food and drink before them in an attempt to know the future. And these gods were supposed to be fortune-telling gods who could be bribed by food and drink. And so they, they established a table and they provided food and drink for these false gods. Therefore, verse 12, therefore I will number you for the sword. You shall all bow down to the slaughter because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Okay, folks, follow what is happening here in Isaiah. Isaiah 64. God, rend the heavens. Come down and Be with us and meet with us and show your mercy to us. And Then in Isaiah 65, God says, here I am. I'm here. I've been extending my hand, my outstretched arm for you, and you went your own way and you didn't answer. So here's the takeaway. There have always been bad grapes and good grapes in Israel's vineyard. Just as Jesus taught, there will be tares and wheat in the world. Just as Jesus taught, there will be sheep and goats in the church. God will preserve those who turn to him and live for the end. And we'll get to that in a moment here at the end of the chapter. Those that are authentic toward the Lord can live for the end. Okay, how do you measure authenticity toward God? It's Is it measured by a legalistic standard of of conformity? If that were the case, then the Pharisees would win the day and could live for the end. Let me give you a few ways in which authenticity toward God is is measured. I think of Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? Here's another idea. Another idea would be Matthew 22. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I don't have others to put before you on the screen, but you might think of Matthew chapter seven when Jesus said that we can know who is authentic by their fruits. Every good tree bears good fruit. Every bad tree bears bad fruit. Jesus said, You can know them by their fruits. Another text would be John 14. Jesus said, Those who love me keep my commandments. And I would ask you this morning at this point in the message is your relationship with God through Jesus Christ for real? And how do you know it's real? Are you the bad grape of rebellious Israel or are you the good grape of the faithful Israel who fears God? Have you cried for God to rend the heavens and come to you while at the very same time rejecting his outstretched hand and that open invitation to you? After looking back to Israel's painful history, we look around at our own condition but then God points us forward to a glorious future, not the weekend, but the end. And this is where we're going this morning the end. And that's number four, the future creation of God. And this is where it gets really good. Look at verse 17 Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. Folks, this is the end. Now, in reading this at the first, it's easy for us to conflate and confuse the 1,000 year millennial kingdom of Jesus with the eternal state in which God creates a new heaven and a new earth. From Isaiah's point, from Isaiah's perspective, he can, he can see the end as a mountain range, if you will. A mountain range in the future. The end of time. But as we approach that horizon, the book of Revelation distinguishes between the 1,000 year millennial reign of Jesus Christ, the millennial kingdom, Revelation 20 verse number 4, and the eternal state that follows Revelation 21 verse number 1. The reason that Isaiah would have seen them together as a single mountain range and not individual peaks is because a 1,000 years is like a pinpoint of time in view of eternity. During the millennial kingdom and subsequently during the eternal state, verse 17, the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. In the new world, We will not remember all of the pain and the suffering of this life in our old world. No more cancer, no more conflict, no more pain or pandemic, no more toil in our work all week long. You see, we shouldn't look just to the weekend. We should look to the end because God is going to do something. He's going to create everything new. Look at verse 18. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. So death will will still occur, but life spans will be extended in the millennial kingdom. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. That was Israel's history. They did all of this work and then were pillaged by their enemies. For as the days of a tree shall so shall be the days of my people and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. People will enjoy safety and be able to keep what they produce. Verse 23, they shall not labor in vain nor bring forth children for trouble. They shall be the descendants of the blessed of the, blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. Th- there will be great blessing. And I've read these things very quickly, but just imagine the beauty and the glory of God's future creation. Folks, we live in a fallen world, and we are daily reminded of the brokenness of this place. We are a fallen man in a fallen world. We are sinful creation that live in a world that is broken beyond repair until this future creation. Something that we look forward to. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. I, I think it's so profound. It's for you there on the back of your notes. He says, I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. This is profound. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, Earth's pleasures were never meant to satisfy it but only arouse it to suggest the real thing. I must make it the the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. Folks, that's the Christian life of faith. That's what all of those in Hebrews chapter 11 lived for and died for. Not the weekend, but the end. This is the hope that we have. In the end, verse 24, Isaiah 65, verse 24, it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. Remember this? Remember back in Isaiah 64? Oh God, rend the heavens and and come to us. God says, "Uh, here I am, my outstretched hand. Before you call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. God will answer their prayers. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. This is what it's saying. There will be harmony in the created order. There will be harmony among the animals. This is a a condensed version of Isaiah 11, verses six through nine. If we were to cross-reference back to that description, Isaiah 11, verses six through nine. But folks, this sounds like a return to to paradise. Like the good old days in the Garden of Eden before the fall of man. For in the end, God is going to restore the world, his new creation, back to as it was at the beginning. And this is number, f- number five. The final blessing from God. That final blessing is a state of peace at long last. Peace. In the end, God will answer the cry of mankind with peace. Folks, we are consumed with current events. We are consumed with our present circumstances. But this world is not our final home. We're just passing through. We're tempted to live for the weekend. But all that we would live for the end... Because 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 says, I has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God prepares for those who love Him. I think the best counsel that I can give you, give us in this hour, is to set our hope in Christ alone. Hope in this life, our hope in death. In the last month, we have had three of our own membership have passed from this life to eternal life. What is our hope in life and death? It's not the weekend, but it is the end, beyond the weekend. And folks, it is going to be good. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, I pray that you would protect us and preserve us from behaving like rebellious Israel. God, they turned after their own way. They went astray. They rebelled against you in spite of all of the kindness that you showered upon them. Lord, you loved them. You chose them. You delivered them. You redeemed them. Lord, you gave them an inheritance. But Lord, they rebelled. They rebelled as bad grapes. I pray, Lord, that you would find us to be faithful to the end. And Lord, as we labor through the circumstances of our lives, may our hope not be in the weekend, but in the end. For our hope in life and death is in you. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our hearts, strengthen our faith in these truths. For I pray it in Jesus' name.